Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Michael Casp. I'm the Director of Business Development for J&J Editorial. Uh, J&J provides publishing services to publishers, societies, and editorial offices. Our show today was inspired by Peer Review Week, which runs from September 11th through the 17th this year. Uh, visit peerreviewweek.wordpress.com and follow the hashtag PeerRevWK17 to follow all of the 2017 Peer Review Week events. The theme for this year's Peer Review Week is transparency, hashtag transparency in review. And joining me today to talk about transparency in Peer Review Week is my panel of scholarly publishing luminaries coming from backgrounds ranging from medical research, writing, publishing, philosophy, and ethics. Our panel discussion will be divided into four podcasts, with one posted each day from September 11th through the 14th on the J&J Editorial website, jjeditorial.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at jjeditorial uh, to see all the updates. Our goal for this series is to take a deep a nuanced look into what transparency and peer review can mean. What are the ways that peer review can be more transparent in both traditional and open peer review models? Who are the stakeholders pushing for more transparency? How does transparency and peer review benefit the scientific community? And how does it benefit the public? And does transparent peer review address the limitations of traditional peer review? To answer these questions and more, I'd like to introduce my illustrious panel in no particular order. First, I'd like to welcome Tom Lang. Tom is the principal at Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Nice to be here. Tom has been a technical and medical writer uh, since 1975 and has written several books on the topic. He's also an award-winning teacher. And some of you might know him as a fellow at the American Medical Writers Association, a past president at the Council of Science Editors, and treasurer of the World Association of Medical Editors. Uh, most recently, uh, Tom spoke at this year's annual ISMTE meeting in Denver about transparency and what legitimate journals can do to signal to authors that they are not predatory publications. Uh, Tom, thanks for being here. And Michelle told me about that talk. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But yeah, Michelle told me uh, that she really enjoyed uh, your talk uh, there. Michelle English, um, who put that meeting together. So really looking forward Thank to you. it. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, next up, we have Allison Leung from the Public Library of Science. Allison is the editorial manager of PLOS Pathogens and PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases, two of PLOS's community journals. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Allison's been working in academic publishing for almost a decade, uh, previously worked at SAGE, where she uh, did a range of things, journals production, management, and acquisitions. And I saw Allison speak at the Council of Science Editors meeting in uh, Sa San Diego. Uh, Allison talked about uh, PLOS's current work with preprints. So Allison, I'm really looking forward to your perspective. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've worked with PLOS for a long time here at J&J. &J, so, um, yeah, I know they always have some interesting uh, things going on as far as um, where publishing is going. Uh, next up, we have Dr. David B. Resnick, JD, PhD. 
Um, Dr. Resnick is a bioethicist and IRB chair at the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences at the NIH. Dr. Resnick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Resnick has a PhD in philosophy and has published over 200 articles on various topics in philosophy, bioethics, and is the author of eight books. Uh, He serves on several editorial boards and is an associate editor of the Journal of Accountability in Research. Uh, Dr. Resnick, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I've heard... um, I haven't heard you speak, but I have uh, several colleagues who, who have, and, and they, they were fans. So I'm looking forward to talking to you. And finally, we have Dr. Pedro T. Ramirez, MD. Dr. Ramirez is a David M. Gershenson Distinguished Professor in Ovarian Cancer Research and the Director of Minimally Invasive Surgical Research and Education in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Ramirez, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Mike. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope everything's going all right over there in uh, southeastern Texas. You drying the sun is back out. That's wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And you have electricity and internet, so... And food. And food. Perfect. (laughs) Well, I'm really glad that you could join us um, because Dr. Ramirez is the incoming editor-in-chief at the International Journal of Gynecologic Cancer. Uh, So um, I guess you've been uh, thinking a little bit about publishing and uh, journal policies. So really looking forward to hearing your perspectives today. Mm Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that's our panel today. So let's jump right in to our first topic which is what do we mean when we say transparency in review? So um, let me throw this first to Allison. What do we mean when we say transparency in review? Do you have uh, any perspectives on that? Yeah, so I think um, transparency to me is really about the reader and the authors being able to trust and have integrity in the peer review process. So right now, peer review can be kind of a black box for authors and for the readers. The manuscript gets submitted to a journal, and then it has to go through this peer review process, and that isn't right now very transparent. Um, So having more transparency in that peer review process means that the authors trust the decisions that are being made. They trust that the reviewers who are used are qualified, that they're doing a comprehensive review, that they don't have bias, they don't have conflicting interests. And that would also be the same for editors. So I think that comes in a lot of different forms. Um, And one of the ways now that is being discussed is sort of open peer review, which is not exactly transparency. It is a form of transparency. Um, An open peer review would be a specific thing, um, which would be like having the reviews be published alongside the paper or having various shades of that. Like maybe there's community review where papers are posted and people are writing reviews after the paper's already been posted, um, it could mean having those reviews be anonymized, having the reviews be signed. So I think transparency can be a lot of things, um, but at the end of the day, it's really about integrity and about trust in the decision that's being made. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really good place to start um, because I, I am very curious on on sort of the researcher side. So I want to pivot over to Dr. Ramirez and, 
and, and kind of get your perspective on on how like helpful or important you think it would be to to have a little more transparency on on seeing the review process behind some of the papers you look at. Yes, thank you, Michael. And I think uh, Allison uh, uh, put it very, very well. Um, and I think that you know there, there are several issues with regards to the element of transparency. And I think that um, readers would value the benefit of having access to the feedback that was given to the authors by the reviewers um, prior to that uh, paper being published in its final form. Uh, because obviously the, it, it provides a, a, an even more in-depth evaluation of the uh, of the manuscript, and it lets the reader perhaps you know have uh, some additional information that that they would not have thought of, uh, about with regards to the to the paper or, or the topic at hand. I think that the the um, the issue of concern is beyond that point. Uh, in other words, for the authors to have access to uh, the uh, identification as to who is reviewing the manuscripts, I, I think that would probably not um, be very effective um, and, and probably it, it would detract from the, from the quality of the, uh, of the reviews that are, that are submitted. Um, and, and certainly I think that, you know, that there is also the point of, for the reviewer, knowing where the paper is coming from. And I know that there are some journals that um, submit the, the manuscripts to the reviewers without information as to who is the submitting author. Um, but I think I, obviously that has its pros and cons as well, and we, and we can elaborate further. But I think overall, with regards to this particular uh, point that Allison was making, I think certainly there would potentially be value in, in having information um, that was provided to the authors when that paper was uh, reviewed. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of value there. I think um, something I think about a lot is, is is yes, there is a lot about. Do we have? Do our do the readers have the time and inclination to to dig into this? Say, um, if they were, you know, if there were reviews connected to a paper, do you think this is something that that you would read as you were you know, doing research or background for for a paper that you were writing? You know, I think that for a major, uh, like for example, a phase three randomized trial in a very high reputable journal then that could be uh, of interest to the readers and certainly something that could be um, a, a link to, to a manuscript. But then, of course, obviously that would bring additional work and, 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 um, and potential use of resources to the, to the managing editors and the staff associated with that. And then, you know, frankly, sometimes the, the, you may have a manuscript that gets published uh, and there were three reviewers. Two of those were very uh, complimentary and, and proactive towards this being published. And another reviewer um, completely uh, the opposite, potentially. And, and, and as I said, you know, the other thing also is that, frankly, a lot, of, uh, a lot of times reviewers most likely would not use the language that they use if they knew that a review was going to be published and identified to them. Yes, that's something I, I saw a lot in the research I was doing putting this together was was that um, distinction where people really do communicate differently if, if they know it's going to be public or not. Um, so I, I, I'm really curious and, and sort of digging into that piece. I wanted to see, um, uh, Dr. Resnick, if you had any, any thoughts about 
um, maybe how reviewers might uh, come at a review if they know things are going to be um, public or, or versus not? Well, I think they tend to be more uh, definitely more measured and careful about their review. They may not be quite as honest and open. Sometimes reviewers use language that is kind of derogatory toward the uh, to, to the authors and really not very nice at all. Um, you see that, and uh, I think they would probably hesitate to have something like that um, in the public view. So I, I definitely think they might, you know, be more measured in their response if um, if things are going to be public. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. And, and Tom, I wanted to know um, what you thought about that. You've, you've been working in, in this industry for, for a while now. and Let's see if you had a perspective on on that sort of communication, the, the forthrightness or, or directness or sometimes maybe rudeness even of uh, of, an, of a reviewer who, who might really just be giving their honest opinion, but maybe their opinion is just not great. Do you, do you think there is value in that or, or do you think perhaps the value of uh, other people actually seeing uh, reviewer perspectives outweighs that? Well, the, the literature is pretty clear about the pros and cons of the different kinds of, of review, <clears throat> whether it's single-blinded, double-blinded, open, um, or whatever. Uh, and yes, if you sign your name to it, people tend to be more polite. Uh, the concern is also, and it appears to be borne out by at least some research, that you also don't get the same level of, um, of critical appraisal that uh, reviewers hold back a little bit because they want to be nice. Uh, I think a, a cultural issue that I had not considered until I began to, to prepare for this podcast was that in many parts of the world, it is decidedly inappropriate for a junior person to criticize a senior person, which means that a signed open review <clears throat> um, has a lot of consequences for it other than just what happens in the, the scientific reading of the paper. Um, as a a member of the executive committee of WHAMI, I will tell you that uh, WHAMI supports you know, complete transparency in as many aspects of the journal as you can. You might go to the website and look at the uh, <clears throat> uh, WHAMI's policy on, on journal transparency. It covers 16 different areas. Uh, and I think the, the underlying uh, reason for transparency, is, as Allison mentioned, is really trust. Um, Making information available to people is, I think, um, a good thing generally because it allows people who want to. think what they want is they want to know that they can trust the information that they're reading. And typically, um, the peer review process has been the beginning of the discussion about the research, not the end of it, but the beginning of it. And the peer review process was supposed to be that sort of stamp of, of quality that said, okay, now whatever else is going on, this is, this is what's here. The question then is how do you uh, produce the most objective and the high quality uh, peer reviews? Um, some evidence says transparency is a good thing. Some evidence says that maybe it's not. So I think it's, uh, I think it's a difficult question. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why when we started putting uh, this show together, ha that 
really struck us is is there were very strong arguments in, in all directions as far as how much transparency is good, how much borders into too much and actually starts to detract uh, from from what we're trying to get at. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that, that you all um, seem to agree that, that it all does center around trust because that really seemed to be the theme that came through uh, most strongly to me as well is, is – is, is can can you trust this article or this piece of information? How much information around it uh, do you need? And so um, I kind of want to just touch on uh, one of these articles I sent to you all, which is um, this article by Professor Kathleen Fahey uh, from Women in Birth, who uh, she's the editor-in-chief, and she basically wrote out an article uh, just laying out in, in pretty good detail um, their peer review process for her journal. And, and so this struck me as at least a, a good step in the direction of transparency. And I want to kind of get your perspective. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Resnick um, on if you think this adds uh, something to the level of trust people can have in this journal or, or if this is a good thing for, for all journals to do or, or if you think um, journals should go even further than this. Well, um, I, you know, transparency is a good thing, but part of the problem is when you start laying out all your policies, too, is that you kind of box yourself into a position, and you also then you start opening yourself. The more you say your policy is, the more detail it is, the more that people are, that are un, dissatisfied with the process might then point to your policy and say, hey, you're not complying with your policy, blah, blah, blah. Why did you make this decision about our paper? So I think policies are definitely a good thing, but, you know, like I said, they can box you in, and sometimes you need some flexibility in terms of the decisions you're making. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't considered it uh, from that perspective. But, but yeah, I think you're right that – yeah. And that's that gets back to um, what Allison was saying, why so many journals kind of keep it a black box, because that, that gives them some some wiggle room uh, as far as decision making. Um, so, Allison, what do you think? Um, do you think that uh, laying out uh, policies is, is really important or do you feel like it, it's good to kind of like leave yourself a little space to uh, to freestyle? Well, I think that there is a balance. Like, I, I agree with David that if you say specifically it's going to happen, like, step one, step two, step three, the minute it deviates from that, you might get somebody who's like, what, but wait, you didn't go through exactly as you outlined it. Um, but I think that being transparent about, like, what the idealized or what the general process is is really important for readers and it's really important for authors because you don't want them to feel like, they submitted their paper to a journal and well, now what? Well, three months from now, I'm going to get some decision. And is that decision going to have been made with rigor? Like how many reviewers is it going to, you know, you want to have some, you want them to have some kind of expectation of what that process is going to be like. Um, I actually liked what they had laid out. I think they were pretty generic in what they were saying that like generally it goes through like this kind of triage and this is generally like what, the different types of decision-making processes like. Um, I think that is important for people to have, especially I think for authors, because it can be such a stressful process for them. Um, and having that kind of, having the the process behind what the decision is will help people accept the decision when it comes in and see that as something that they can trust and believe in. 
Right. Um, I want to uh, throw it over to Dr. Ramirez. And, and since you are about to be an editor-in-chief yourself, um, is this something you would do? Um, and, and I don't want to box you in if, if you don't want to be boxed in sure. on, on this <laughs> decision. Um, but uh, do you think um, you would be interested in po- possibly laying out sort of uh, your general journal decision-making policies? Well, I think it's uh, it's completely fine to um, outline the process in terms of what happens to the manuscript once it reaches the the journal, and and I think that's completely okay. Uh, and and that that way the submitting author has a reference point with regards to how many reviewers are going to review the paper, uh, whether the paper is going to go immediately to reviewers versus an initial evaluation by an associate editor and make an immediate decision within 24 hours, how long the, the reviewers are expected to, to take to, to uh, write their, their reviews and, and when you should anticipate um, getting that information back to you. I think that laying out that process is okay. I think that when you go beyond that, I think that that will be a problem. Um, and I think that uh, this could would potentially um, not work very well um, in regards to providing transparency as to who the reviewers are going to be uh, for a particular manuscript. Because even now, uh, obviously, having the experience of being the associate editor for the Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecology, uh, even when it is completely blinded, uh, we often will get a response back from a, an author or a group of authors uh, telling us they completely disagree with, uh, with the uh, reviews that were submitted and that they demand for them to be sent to somebody else. Uh, they don't even know who the reviewers are. So I think that if you were to provide transparency as to who the manuscripts were going to, then that that will bring another layer of uh, of potential confrontation where a, a, a particular author may not feel that the person you're sending it to is the best uh, person to review your manuscript, that that person may have a conflict of interest with your work, uh, that that person may be a junior person, uh, that that person may not be from the same area that you're focusing your objective on the manuscript. So I think that beyond the point of just outlining what the process is going to be for the manuscript once it gets to the journal, um, I don't think that it's a, it's a good idea. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that perspective. Yeah, I think you, you definitely want to leave yourself some space to, uh, to navigate um, through these potentially treacherous waters. Um, Tom, did you have any uh, perspectives on, on as far as journal laying things out or, or the potential uh, pitfalls, I guess, uh, behind uh, certain kinds of transparent peer review? Sure. Um, I think the only issue we're talking about with transparency that is controversial is do you publish the review with the paper and do you publish the reviewer's name with his or her review? The, the mechanisms of what happens in a journal I think there's pretty wide agreement, <clears throat> at least among WAMI members, that that should be on the, the website with the instructions for authors. It should be clear. It should be complete. Uh, again, I refer you to the policy of transparency on the WAMI website. Uh, partly this is important because uh, predatory open access journals do not include a lot of this material. Um, so it's, you know, anything the good guys can do on a website, the bad guys can do too. So it's not a... Uh, preventive uh, sure thing, but 
the full disclosure of how the journal works is a hallmark of a legitimate journal, and the uh, lack of documentation of that on the website is a red flag for a potential predatory journal. So I think that when we talk about transparency, the real issue is um, if the article is rejected, do you give the name of the peer reviewer? If the article is published uh, and accepted, do you publish the review with the name of the peer reviewer? Those in the literature, it seems to me that those are the real, uh, those just those two or three decisions are the ones that are the most controversial. Gotcha. So if I, if I that, Tom, I would say that um, if the first were to be the case, you would have no reviewers uh, because no one would want their name uh, to be published uh, after you reject a, a manuscript. And I think that that would be uh, very, very challenging. And then the, for, the, for the second option, I think that then most likely then you will be restricting yourself to publishing only the reviews of the ones that actually accepted the paper. Uh, so in other words, if you have a m manuscript that was reviewed by three reviewers, two were major revisions, um, one was a rejection, then do you as, a, as an editor say, well, I'm just going to publish the two favorable ones rather than the, the other one because obviously the other one does not want to be identified as the one that rejected the paper. And even, even the, other, the other issue with that is that even when somebody accepts the paper, a lot of times, you know, it may it may become an issue where you say, well, I submitted this manuscript to Lancet, but God, you know, you 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 could have been a lot easier on me. Why did you send in 26 comments? And then it becomes this retaliation or this uh, this potential anger against somebody else within your field. So th these are these are all things that that need to be considered. Yeah, well, I want to be real clear. I'm not supporting or re refuting any of these options. I'm just looking at the literature. Uh, mm -hmm. And you're right. Identified the problems that everybody agrees are there. Um, you know, if you sign your name to something, how how honest can you really be? And if you don't sign right. your name to something, you know, are you subject to all these biases? And clearly, there's lots of evidence to show that. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that um, no matter what happens. We need to come up with a cadre of, of peer reviewers who are better trained to do peer review, just in the objective technical sense. And I think part of that also is a lot of training and just professionalism. Uh, you know, there's no need to be um, snarky in comments. I mean, a professional deals with the issues here without getting involved in it. And I think it's kind of a failing of, of the institution of science globally that there isn't more uh, you know, professional disagreements rather than the, the kinds of, you know, very inflammatory things, and we've all seen them. Uh, yes. You know, it's very common. Um, and I have certainly felt that way. Every paper I, I submit comes back with reviews. One of the reviewers could not possibly have read the paper and reviewed it, you know. Right. And so you get a couple of days, you, you wait till that frustration goes by, and then you deal with the issues at hand. But um, I think that the I, professionalism is a teachable, solvable problem. And I'm not so much concerned about that uh, personally as I am with this larger issue of bias, either consciously or unconscious bias. I agree. Great. And, and I'd love to get um, Dr. Resnick's perspective as well as, as the editor or an associate editor of the Journal of uh, Accountability and Research. This seems to be right up your alley. So um, as far as people being accountable in research and 
and and how accountable should uh, people be as far as uh, their reviewer comments go? I think they should be completely accountable. I mean, you have people's careers that are at stake in terms of these comments. I think you you have to be very very serious about your comments and be able to back them up um, if you you know when you make them and. You shouldn't review something that you're not really competent to review, and you shouldn't review a paper if you haven't read it, if you don't plan to read it carefully. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say reviewers have to be as accountable as anyone in the whole process. That makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, that is all the time we have for our first segment. So we're going to take a little break for our guests and uh, for our listeners. We will uh, see you tomorrow because that'll do it. Um, So we attempted today to sort of define what transparency means in peer review. Um, So tomorrow we'll talk a little bit about how transparency will benefit the scientific community. So um, if you enjoyed that, please come back tomorrow and remember to visit peerreviewweek.wordpress.com and follow the hashtag peerrevwk17 throughout peer review week to follow all the happenings. And so for Tom Lang, Allison Leung, Dr. David Resnick, and Dr. Pedro Ramirez. I'm Michael Casp, and we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back. Um, thank you for joining us once again for Perspectives on Transparency and Peer Review. I'm Michael Casp from J&J Editorial. I am once again joined by my panel, uh, Tom Lang of Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. I'm also joined by Allison Leung, Editorial Manager for PLOS Pathogens and PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases. Allison, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm also joined by Dr. David B. Resnick of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, where he is bioethicist and IRB chair. Dr. Resnick, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Pedro T. Ramirez, uh, who is the Distinguished Professor in Ovarian Cancer Research and Director of Minimally Invasive Surgical Research and Education at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Ramirez, thanks for being with us today. Hey, Michael. Let's jump right in and talk about uh, how we think transparency will benefit the scientific community. I think that we sort of touched on it in our last segment, uh, but let's dig in a little more specifically and in, in, in starting with um, the author perspective on what do authors really want out of transparent review. And so let's start with uh, Dr. Resnick. As an author, what, what are you looking for um, out of transparency? Well, I, I go back to what we talked about last time. It seems to me that the goal of transparency is, is, is trust and Really, as an author, I think what you need to be able to trust is that 
the review process is fair and as unbiased as it can be that you've that your your paper has gotten a fair hearing and so being transparent and telling authors how the process works and everything is is very important for establishing that trust and assuring authors they've been treated fairly absolutely um i want to throw this over to allison and, and see what you think about um from an author's perspective what what do you feel like your authors uh, would want from transparent review yeah i mean i think it's echoing everything that david said that's exactly right um in addition i think that they want to know that when they are published and are accepted into a journal that the other papers that are have also been published are at the same caliber of the work that they've done and so that's part of like your final product is what you trust and you know that the, all the decisions that went into every single paper were done fairly and done with rigor absolutely so so do you feel like um overall transparency would just help uh, I don't know if I want to use the word, but the help police sort of the way trans or the way peer review is done. Um, so that if it's transparent, then then anytime something goes awry, um, people can call it out and, and we can see it. Does that does that seem like a, a pretty good um, point behind uh, transparency? Anyone? I don't know. I don't know if I would call it policing, but I think that as a journal, you have to have processes in place in order to. Um, address sort of that bad apple scenario. Um, and of course, like every time you're publishing, we publish hundreds of articles a year, we're getting thousands of articles submitted to us, we're having to go through a lot of different scenarios. And so the better, more transparent like processes you have in place, the easier it is to deal with things that come up. Um, for example, like if you're making sure that authors are declaring like their conflicting interests and their funding and their financial disclosure, like for the most part, people are doing that honestly but of course that process is in place to prevent people from not declaring it and then having research that's out there that you don't realize was funded by like a pharmaceutical company or some other kind of corporation so those policies are really in place to protect against the bad apples so it's not policing necessary necessarily by calling like a good practice yeah i would would agree i think there's two aspects here related to that one is uh you want to promote a bias-free process, but the other is if there is bias is to make it visible. And I'm reminded of, of the uh, uh, legal process or a courtroom where you've got two intentionally biased sides, prosecuting and, and defense. And a third party makes the decision, but you don't want that trial to happen in secret. You want those specific points of view, however biased they are, specifically biased, to be brought out to the fullest extent possible. That's the adversarial nature of justice. But transparency is still important even in that adversarial process um, as it should be in science, which, which we expect everybody to, to sort of manage their own biases, um, you know, however well they do that. I think that's a great point uh, about bias because as much as you know, we'd like to to make this a completely objective process. I mean, that's we're still human beings, and we're all going to have biases in, in one way or another. But but really, being transparent about those, I think, is 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 the best way forward. Um, Dr. Resnick, wh what would you say about that? As far as having um, people having biases and bring those into their decision making process. Um, well, I think part of the problem is that the biases that people have, they're not aware of. They're these subconscious biases. They, 
they may not they they may be theoretically they, they may have theoretical or other kinds of professional reasons why they don't like a certain type of paper or a certain kind of research and um they're it may show up in their comments they may not be aware of it i think it's it's up to editors to try to 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 try to figure out what kind of biases the reviewers have and or may have and and to try to bring that out that's why i think the selection of, of reviewers by the editor is a really important part of managing bias because sometimes if you don't if you're an editor and you don't really like a paper you know a, a reviewer is going to give it a negative review you just assign it to that reviewer and you get a negative review back and so um that that's that's the kind of thing that can happen and i think it, it's really hard to make all those sorts of biases transparent because we may not even be aware of them I think that's a really interesting point. So I want to throw this over to Dr. Ramirez um, and kind of kind of get your perspective on how how you try to manage bias as, as an editor uh, for your journals. Yes, I think it, it goes back to the point that David was raising with that is absolutely very very important. I think a lot of the responsibility uh, in the current system that we have has to um, lay in the hands of the uh, editors or the, edit uh, the editor-in-chief or the associate editors um, because very um, accurately, uh, as he said, uh, you know as the editor uh, your reviewers and, and particularly the reviewers on the editorial board um, and you know how they may feel regarding a specific topic and I think that it, it really would not serve the authors well if, if you have a, a paper uh, that is perhaps on, let's say an example, on robotic surgery, and you send it to three reviewers that are absolutely completely against robotic surgery and they love laparoscopic surgery. By definition, you, you already predetermined the destiny of that manuscript uh, even before it got to, to the reviewer. So I think a lot of that information um, and a lot of that bias uh, can, can be impacted upon by the decisions that the editor um, makes in, in sending those, those papers out to the, to the uh, editorial board or the, or the reviewers. Uh, so I think that's very important, and I think uh, you know, going back to the point of the of the element of transparency. Yes, I, I agree that as authors, we want the, the the most fair assessment of the manuscript, and we often get frustrated when we see that that hasn't happened uh, reflected in the in the comments of the reviewers. But other than again explaining the process of how we are going to. Uh, handle the manuscript, how do you really define transparency to the author? That's a great question, and and kind of brings me to, to one of the points I wanted to hit, which is do you feel like transparency will address editorial bias, or do you feel like editorial bias is sort of baked in? Um, as, as far as editors making decisions, like like you mentioned about you know who who they send a review to, um, and, and sort of pre pre judging or pre defining where like the fate of this paper, like will transparency actually change the fate of that paper, or or does that just ultimately just ha uh, lie in the hands of the editor? Yeah, I think it goes back to the question of how do you define transparency. 
if you're telling me you're going to identify the reviewers, that's, that's very different than, than just telling me the process and, and the principles that you're going to abide by as a journal. Uh, in other words, you, you know, going to maintain the integrity of, of, the, of the objective and principle and, and try to gear that manuscript towards reviewers who are in that same field, that's very different than saying this is going to go to Dr. Smith, Dr. Jackson, and Dr. Taylor. Uh, it, that, that's a very different definition of transparency. Well, there's a, a system factor here, too. Um, in the old days, print journals had a limited number of pages. They had articles competed for those pages, and the journal editor had a very specific charge to publish articles of high interest to a specific market. You know, I mean, a journal is like television. It, it makes its money by selling um, uh, an audience to an advertiser. So journal mm -hmm. editors had to be very uh, cognizant about what their readers wanted to read about, whether or not they, they were interested in robotics versus uh, laparoscopic surgery. It was the readers, or in theory, the needs of the readers that drove that process. But now that you've got open access journals, which have no specific readership, I mean, it's huge, it's worldwide, but now all you're looking is to, is this paper of a, a quality high enough to get published? Now you've removed that other criteria, which is, you know, interest to uh, a specific, very specific identified market. So that that systems issue, I think, affects uh, the process that we're talking about when we talk about what needs to be made transparent. I think you bring up a really interesting time. I don't know if you meant to, but but since we're talking about transparency, do we think that there is a need for journals to be more transparent about their operations as far as money, where their money comes from and where it goes. Um, do you think that this yeah, is that's, something? That's that, all in the statement for, for transparency of journals that you can find on the Whammy website, which is, is co-authored by a lot of other important associations, I might add. So yes, that's, that's very much um, a factor. Great. And, and Allison, I wanted to know if you had some perspective on this. I know PLOS is pretty open about uh, their finances and things like that. Do you, do you feel like that that is a big uh, component to transparency? Yeah, I think that definitely can be, especially in an open access model where we have article processing charges. It's important for funders and for authors to know where those article process charges are going to. Um, I think because they can be very high, you want to have some kind of, you want to illuminate where all that money is going to. It's not just going into the profits of, you know, the CEO that is being used for innovation, it's being used to build systems, it's being used to host all the articles and to produce them and to typeset them. Um, so I think that is an important part, especially now that we have so many open access journals. And even with subscription journals, I think that it's important because some of those subscriptions can also be very expensive, even though it doesn't fall on the authors to be having to pay it. Um, it falls on the institutions, and it's important for the institutions to know when I'm paying a $3,000 subscription, like what is that actually paying for? Absolutely. I want to um, get Dr. Resnick's perspective as well uh, on transparency. Do you feel like journals have a responsibility to be transparent about um, their finances or, or potential conflicts therein? Uh, yeah, absolutely, but you have to keep in mind that most journals now are, you know, they're run by these large public publishing houses like Springer and 
you know, um, you know, nature, medicine, nature, and, you know, uh, Oxford and Wiley and all these, most, that's where most journals come from. And so those kind of finances, uh, the editors will not be privy to. The most that you will be able to disclose is who the publisher is. Um, they'll have more insight into it when it's published by like a professional association or something when, where, you know, you have more insight into the finances of the organization. Right. I think that's a good point. Yep. There's only so much, uh, transparency that's realistically, uh, that we can realistically expect. Um, so I want to kind of, um, move into talking about societies a little bit since you, since you brought it up. Um, as far as deciding on, on papers to publish, um, and do you feel like it is the prerogative of societies to sometimes just publish what they kind of want because they have a certain uh, point of view or perspective that, um, that they may be pressing forward? Um, so, so could transparency get in the way of, of a, a society potentially pushing a, an idea or perspective? Start with uh, Dr. Resnick on this one. Um, well, you know, uh, if if a society has a certain theoretical point of view, I see no reason why they need to publish certain articles. I mean, we we've had there's a few journals that I don't know if it's a society concern, but they basically said we will not publish anything sponsored by the tobacco industry. Um, even something that might demonstrate, say, some health benefits of nicotine for treating depression or something, um, they've just made that as a matter of that's their value, that's their stance. Uh, but you could imagine some other situations where a professional society or whoever decided that they just don't publish certain things because they're just opposed to it as a matter of policy or whatever. Right. Yeah, no, and I think it sounds like they were pretty uh, open about um, making that policy known, um, which I think does make a lot of sense, but uh, I'm sure not all societies would necessarily want to, to put that in writing if they did have certain uh, perspectives. But, um, yeah, Tom, did you have any perspective on that? Um, I'm sure you've worked with societies in the past. Do you, do you think about um, sort of a, a society with a, a point of view and, and – how much transparency they might want uh, versus uh, another journal that may not be connected to a society? Well, I'm not sure I can address that question specifically. Uh, quite frankly, what comes to mind is is a saying that I learned as a, a, a young medical technical writer in the 70s, which was that when we clarify the meaning, we sometimes coincidentally reveal it. And that, of course, is the whole purpose of transparency. It's to reveal something that uh, could potentially bias one way or another. So that's not really related to your question. That's just what came up. But I think the, uh, the concept is still there, is that in science, to be science, is supposed to be transparent and reproducible and systematic and, and integrated with itself and so forth, and that, um, that transparency is the glue that makes all that possible. And without it, you're back to doing science in the days of Dr. Frankenstein, where it's funded by an individual without ethical overview, oversight, uh, you know, all the, uh, the other things that come along with that kind of 
of traditional medieval, quote, science, unquote. So um, I, I, I think the point that uh, organizations can have uh, statements saying, yeah, we're not going to fund anything you know, sponsored by the tobacco industry is certainly uh, understandable and acceptable. And again, even if it's not, it's at least transparent. And they're up front and saying, yeah, this is, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. Great. Uh, moving on to a slightly different topic, but, but semi-related as far as do readers have the time and inclination to to read reviews um, or, or to read um, into all this transparency? Because, yes, I, I completely agree that there is a lot of value in, in you know, publishing reviews and, and, and potentially publishing uh, the authors of those reviews. Um, but I want to know if, if, you, if, you, if you all think that people are going to be reading these like are, are authors going to be digging into or rather readers or potential authors while they're doing research are they going to be digging into these reviews and and trying to to tease out you know more nuanced points than are in the original research paper um Allison I, I kind of want to start with you because I know you've uh, done a lot of looking at preprints uh and, mm-hmm. and potential preprint reviews and things of that nature. So, so are people doing a lot of, of looking at those and also uh, reading them and writing them? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think there is admittedly a lot of content out there for readers to read right now. Um, I think if we were to move to an open review model where the reviews are getting published alongside the article, um, maybe most of them wouldn't be read or maybe only some of them would be read. Um, but that isn't necessarily a reason not to do it. Um, if it's going back to the question of bias, having those reviews published alongside the article, whether they're signed or not signed, um, could sort of make that bias more visible to the reader and they could see, okay, well, there were split decisions or this person may have been leaning one way or another. And so even if it's not read by every single person who reads the article, it may still be valid to have up alongside the article. Um, it kind of reminds me of a plot has a policy where we have all the underlying data for our papers made available. Do most people access the data for those papers? Probably not. Um, Is it still the right thing to be doing editorially? We think so. And so even though it's not everyone's using it, it's important for the cases where someone does need to use it, that it's there and it's accessible for them. I think that's a great point. Um, as you said earlier, Allison, it's it's good practice. And, and while it's not necessarily always going to come up or, or even often going to come up, it, occasionally there will be instances where it'll be nice to have like the data or the reviews um, just there um, for, for anyone who might want to look into it. Uh, Dr. Ramirez, I, I kind of want to get your perspective on this as, as someone who's uh, about to helm a journal. Um do you, do you feel like that it is good practice and, and is this something you would be interested in doing on, on one of your journals? I think uh, readers uh, would generally be very interested in the reviews of high-impact journals and um, in the reviews of manuscripts that are of high value to the uh, to the field. Uh, in, in other words, uh, going back to the difference between a small retrospective study versus a phase three randomized trial, um, I think that most readers will be very interested in seeing what were the comments that shaped the the final form of that of that manuscript, and uh, and in that sense, I think that there will be a high demand for for that. 
Um, certainly for low impact journal, I think that the likelihood of anyone reading reviewers' comments on a, on a, on a journal whose impact factor is very low, uh, that would be much less likely. That makes sense. Um, and I think that's about all the time we have for today's installment. So I want to thank uh, my panelists once again. Um, today we looked at how transparency can benefit the scientific community. Um, so join us again tomorrow uh, when we'll talk about how transparency benefits the public. And remember to visit peerreviewweek.wordpress.com for all your peer review week needs. And so for Tom Lang, Allison Leung, Dr. David Resnick, and Dr. Pedro Ramirez, I'm Michael Casp. See you next time. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us once again for our perspectives on transparency and peer review. I'm Michael Casp from J&J Editorial. I am once again joined by my panel, uh, Tom Lang of Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. I'm also joined by Allison Leung, Editorial Manager for PLOS Pathogens and PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases. Allison, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm also joined by Dr. David B. Resnick of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, where he is bioethicist and IRB chair. Dr. Resnick, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Pedro T. Ramirez, uh, who is the Distinguished Professor in Ovarian Cancer Research and Director of of Minimally Invasive Surgical Research and Education at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Ramirez, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Michael. Great. Well, now let's jump into our next topic, which is, Will Transparent Peer Review Benefit the Public by Making Science and the Scientific Literature More Understandable? Or, well, I don't know if I necessarily like that. Uh, will it benefit the public in general? I don't know if it'll make it more understandable, but do you feel that that more transparency will have a benefit to the public, or, or, or will the benefits be primarily limited to, to researchers? Um, let's start with uh, Tom. Tom, what do you think? Do, do you think transparent peer review will benefit the public directly or indirectly? I think so. Um, indirectly because... I think in, in general, and we're clearly talking in general here, is that um, you know, evidence-based medicine is literature-based medicine. Uh, removing or minimizing biases in the publication process should, in fact, minimize biases in the evidence that eventually result in clinical decision-making. So I think that you know, better medical care is sort of the desired outcome of all of this. Um, I think that it might also have an effect in uh, in improving the public's understanding and trust of science in general, of the scientific process, uh, just knowing that the process is uh, transparent. Um, 
you know, we, we know that medical journals are read by all sorts of people for whom they were not written, right? I mean, you know, lawyers, public relations people, um, uh, patients, you know, the whole, whole range of things. Um, but knowing that they can see a process, that this went through peer review, the peer review had these characteristics, perhaps the reviewers signed their names, whatever, and all of that, I think that that's the other general consequence that increased transparency would have, is it would, in, in general, I think, increase the credibility that science has in, in producing results. I think that's great, and, and I want to hear some thoughts from Dr. Resnick about um, if, if you think transparency can increase the trust in the scientific community, as, as Tom just alluded to. Uh, I agree that it has, if it improves the reliability and objectivity of scientific research, then um, yeah, it has, the, certainly that's what the public wants to be able to trust. Um, I guess I have some concerns about how the, the public doesn't really have a very good understanding of science, and one of the public's worst understandings of science is how to evaluate scientific evidence. The public doesn't have a good grasp that evidence accumulates over time and that some studies come out and they show one thing and then another study comes out and it shows the opposite thing and the scientific community has to weigh all the evidence. And um, when you open up the peer review process to the public, you make that sort of back and forth and that critical dialogue that you have, <laughs> excuse me, in science, you know, more transparent, possibly uh, confusing the public even more and leading them to even doubt science even more than they already do. So that's one of my concerns. Yeah, I think that's valid. Um, as you said, the, the scientific process alone is really cloudy enough. Um, so it could be that just adding more part particles to the atmosphere may um, actually be a detriment to, to those who, who may not um, be sophisticated in their reading uh, of the evidence. Um, I mean, let me, let me throw in here, like suppose you have a really highly disputed paper on some topic like global warming, and then you have all these positive reviews of the paper, but there's a negative review that was published, and then critics, uh, you know, on whatever side of the global warming issue, lawyers or whoever, people with political angles, seize on that uh, negative review the paper got to try to undermine the paper, even though the paper had several positive reviews. So. There, there, there is a potential for that to happen when you really open things up to the public. So something that could be good potentially for science could be like a PR nightmare potentially. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Allison, what do you think? Do you think that um, that uh, there is a benefit uh, of, of transparency to the public? And do you feel like it outweighs... Uh, some of the the negatives that, that Tom and, and Dr. Resnick have brought up? I think that having the reviews open to the public may, it may add kind of some cloudiness to what the conversation is. But I think as a society, 
we should understand maybe this is the larger question. Um, we're very used to just getting like a one tidbit piece of knowledge and then holding onto that and believing that it's true forever. And that isn't really what academia is about. It's about asking questions and getting those questions answered and then asking the questions again and going through that iterative process. And so while that may, having the open transparency and open peer review may add to that, I think that really as a society, we should be focusing on like why we need to hold on to that one tidbit of knowledge and why having those dissenting opinions and having the extra knowledge that went into the decision um, is going to cloud that. So I think that there are definitely risks. Um, I think there are definitely positives too. Um, I think that having the dissenting opinions and having the full view can be helpful um, and maybe important for the public to see that it isn't just, yes, this is good definitively forever um, and that there may be a question that comes up later that might may have us, you know, question the, those results or have another study come about that overturns those results. Absolutely. And, and Dr. Ramirez, I want to throw this to you um, as someone who, um, I guess, interacts with the public um, as a physician. Do you feel like, um, I don't know, maybe you could have a patient who could try and, and look at some, uh, some articles uh, about maybe a procedure or, or a condition and and do you do you think that that you know transparency around review might confuse them or or, or or might help them actually understand a little bit more about why your you made the decision you did? Yes, I think, and, and I do see this quite frequently um, conceptually and potentially, as was mentioned before, this could be of benefit. But I think in reality. Um, I agree that uh, this would probably cloud the subject even more, confuse uh, the patients and, and, and the general population, and also lead to that element that Allison was saying of just taking on that, that segment of a statement uh, by somebody who has a very loud voice and then all of a sudden completely driving the, the point opposite of what the scientist or even you know the the, the, the journal or the author meant to to imply with the uh, with the interpretation of their results so I think that you know although conceptually one would think well this would be of great benefit uh, it, it may be very very confusing to to the public um, uh, you know and how and how these points are interpreted yeah, I agree with that. I, I want to know from each of you, um, so, so if you want to start thinking about this, but I'll put this to you first, Dr. Ramirez. Do you think there is a way to clarify things for, for people? Is, is there something that can be done um, to give uh, the public um, a, a perspective or an opinion that, that they can trust and that will kind of condense or distill sort of the general beliefs and knowledge of scientists in, in, in a field. Is there a way that, that we can inform the public that may not necessarily be reviews of peer-reviewed papers? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, that there's a process, and I think some journals are doing this, and actually some societies in their general uh, annual meetings are doing this, and where they basically call it uh, a distillation of the, uh, of the data. Uh, because obviously now at society meetings they know that there's a great deal of journalists there, um, you know, waiting to take the next new uh, finding to to their um, to their uh, uh, newspapers, and uh, and what what is being done is that it's sort of like interpreted for the lay public. 
from the legitimacy of the societies or the legitimacy of the of the journal, uh, and basically general statements are made about important topics. So, for example, the Society of Gynecological Oncology in their annual meeting, they usually will have um, uh, for their main plenary. Uh, they really um, uh, make an effort to make sure that the message that the manuscripts that is being presented or the, the, the study that is being presented, it's interpreted as it should uh, to the lay public media. That's great. And, and that was what I was wondering. So I really like that answer. Um, I want to throw this over to Dr. Resnick now and, and, and see what you think about Ways to distill it for the public is journalism the uh, the right channel, or, or can you think of another way to to kind of get this information out to the layperson? Well, I, I think journalism is the uh, is definitely a, a good way of doing this. Um, you know, I do a lot of interviews in my job as a bioethicist. And one thing that I've seen an increase of is um, journalism with a particular slant, bloggers and all kinds of web-based journalism. And, you know, the journalists that are out there, it's not the New York Times anymore or anything. It's There's just a whole zoo of people out there that interview you with a particular slant. So, um, you know... I think when you're trying to communicate with the public, you have to keep that in mind and try to stay on message and be aware of what your the journalists that are interviewing you, what their agenda is, because they often do have one. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so maybe if, if a society or, or a group of scientists really want to get a message out, they might have to do it directly. So um, would you agree with that, that, that because there is so much slant everywhere and, and, and you know, a reader can kind of pick whatever uh, publication fits their worldview, um, that if, if scientists really want to get the clear message out, maybe they just have to do it directly? Um, so, so, yeah, I'll throw this over to Tom. Um, what do you think? Do you think scientists should make more of an effort in communicating directly, or, or do you feel like there are other channels that, that can uh, suit this purpose? Well, it's a, a common topic at um, CSE conferences and over the years. I think there's a general sense that uh, researchers do need to be more forthcoming to the public from the standpoint of just good public relations for medical research, public health research, and so forth. Um, to relate this back to the current topic, traditionally peer review or published publishing in a peer reviewed journal was considered to be the beginning of the conversation about a particular piece of research. It's not the end result, I mean, it's the last stage of publication is the final stage of research, but it's the point that now the paper is published, now you can talk about it publicly. If you um, violate that. This is the so-called Engelfinger-Relman rule that the New England Journal set up years ago, which says we're not going to publish your article if you've gone to the press first or if you've submitted it. It's been published in another journal first. So I think there's a, a, a time uh, in the continuum here where public discussion and promotion of research is certainly very critical, especially with important public health issues within infectious diseases and and chemical toxicities and so forth. 
Um, I place for researchers to have a part in that. I think I think that makes a lot of sense, and and I'm talking to the editorial manager of PLOS Pathogens and PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases, Allison. What do you think about uh, communicating uh, with the public? And, and I'm curious about PLOS's efforts as far as mm-hmm. as trying to distill this information, especially for for concerns like Tom mentioned for for big public health concerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think having summaries that are digestible to the public is important to have, and the PLOS articles do have a paragraph author summary of the findings of the paper, which is easier for the public to digest. Um, another thing that we do is we do we have a press program at PLOS where the journals each get a press release a week on the research that comes out, which helps us get ahead of some of the stories that the press might pick up on a particular paper that we have, and they may take the conclusions that kind of run with it. If we are doing our own press releases, we're able to better kind of control what the story is and release those press releases ourselves. We have writers that do them. The authors are involved in that process or editors are involved in that process. Um, and that sort of helps us get ahead of a conversation that might happen and, and direct it in, in a way that feels more responsible than what a lot of journalists can do, which is they take a one line from the paper and it's like, coffee's good. Okay, well, that's the story. Coffee's good. And then next week, oh, coffee's bad. And that's the story. Um, so that's one of the ways we're trying to combat that here at PLOS. That's great. The other thing I was gonna I was gonna add is that uh, there are some journals that are actually um, now that the target may not just be the public, but in fact other physicians uh, or, or other scientists where they um, will have access to podcasts, so that the public will have access to podcasts where the investigator may take five minutes and just talk about the findings in his paper. And frankly, uh, there are many, uh, many scientists in, in, uh, that, that will, will just go to that podcast rather than actually read the paper. Yeah, I'd also like to point out that what we're really talking about here is not transparency, but rather clarity and accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to distinguish between those two things, but certainly clarity and accessibility both need to be very high in, in all branches of science. Do you feel like that's what ultimately people are trying to address with transparency, though, is getting more clarity? No. no. Okay, I'm curious no, I think about the distinction. I think it's, it's just in the process it, so that the result can be trusted. I don't think it's necessarily clarity is part of that, but at least my review of the literature here is that transparency is is can we trust and verify that the decision-making processes that result in a published article um, have given us a good approximation of the truth. I understand. All right. Um, so are there other ways to increase uh, trust in, in, in science in the peer review process? I mean, I, I think we might ultimately be up against uh, just a difficult uh, situation where there are so many voices out there. Um, how can we make sure that the trusted voices are the ones that we consider uh, to have integrity are, are the ones that, that, that come to the forefront? Um, do you, uh, Allison, um, so you're involved in a, in a lot of press releases and things like that. Do you feel like um, those are having an impact as far as the, um, the conversation uh, about uh, some of the issues that you and your journals are investigating? 
I think it does. I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, it's a very difficult, that's an uphill battle to climb. Um, and I think that there are always going to be journalists that want to sort of, you know, there's always going to be the stories that just want sort of the easy answer. And there's no way for us to prevent that happening completely. Um, I think releasing our own press releases is one way to try and stop it from happening. It's one way to kind of control the message a little bit. Um, but can I, I can't control every single blogger in the world uh, from misinterpreting the results or like over uh, kind of overstating findings of a conclusion. Um, but I think that's it's a really important question. And so I think something that we should be thinking about as publishers is how do we do, how do we control that? And how do we make that more, how do we build more of that trust um, so that people do go to the more trusted resources? Absolutely. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, so I want to thank my guests once again. Um, today we looked at how we think transparency and peer review benefits the public. And I think we got it a little more into clarity and how, how to communicate um, some of these things to the public because it seems like transparency might not be quite the right question when we're talking about uh, the public. But join us again tomorrow when we ask the question, does transparency address some of the limitations of traditional peer review? And I feel like we've talked around this a lot, but I kind of want to uh, make a conclusion uh, for all of you who are listening and um, just want to remind you about Peer Review Week and peerreviewweek.wordpress.com and the hashtag PeerRevWK17 peer uh, to follow Peer Review Week this year um and so once again for my panelists tom lang allison leung dr david resnick and dr pedro ramirez i'm michael casp and we'll see you next time back to Perspectives on Transparency and Peer Review. I'm Michael Casp from J&J Editorial. Joining me uh, today uh, are my panelists, um, Tom Lang from Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Michael. All right. We also have Allison Leung, uh, who is the Editorial Manager for PLOS Pathogens and PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases. Allison, thank you once again. Yep, thanks for having me. Uh, we also have Dr. David Resnick, uh, the bioethicist and IRB chair at the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, Dr. Resnick, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. And finally, we have Dr. Pedro Ramirez uh, from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he's a professor and director of the Minimally Invasive Surgical Research and Education in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Ramirez. Dr. Ramirez. Thank you, Michael. All right. Now, our final topic that we're going to be addressing for this peer review week is sort of the big question that I want to get at, and I think a lot of people are trying to get at right now, and, and that is, does transparent peer review address some of the limitations in traditional peer review. 
uh, limitations like bias and peer reviewer credit, uh, potential lack of confidence in the traditional system, et cetera. And I think we've touched on a lot of these topics, but I kind of want to go directly at them in this segment. So I'm going to start off uh, with this question. We'll start with uh, Allison. I think I know what your answer is going to be, but do we really need open and or transparent peer review? Well, I think it's kind of important to distinguish the difference between like open peer review and transparent peer review. Transparent peer review, we absolutely need. I think all journals should have a transparent peer review system where the authors can trust in the decisions that are being made and the readers can trust in the rigor of the peer review process being done. Um, When it comes to open review, where we have the reviews that are being published alongside the article, whether they're signed or not signed, I think that's that's another question entirely. Um, Need is maybe a strong word. I think that there is definitely a, a groundswell right now Um, For people who want this, I think open peer review can address some of the limitations of traditional peer review um, where you're not seeing the reviews, things like bias or peer reviewers not getting credit for the work that they're doing, um, maybe can help illuminate some of the rigorous discussions that happen behind the scenes. Um, But I, I think it's still, there's a lot of, it's an open question. I think that there is a lot of differing opinions on it. I strongly believe in transparent peer review. I think open peer review is an interesting model that is definitely worth exploring um, and interesting because it does address some of those limitations. Great. Let's toss this over to Tom. Tom, what do you think? Is there a need for for more transparency in peer review? And if you want to address open peer review as well, I'd love to hear it. I think Allison nailed it. I think you have to distinguish between uh, a transparent process in general, uh, and there seems to be wide agreement that that's okay. Open peer review in the sense of publishing reviews signed by the reviewer, I do think we ought to explore it. It's being explored. It does not appear to be uh, the silver bullet that uh, removes bias. It seems to introduce other biases. But like Allison, I think that we need to explore it and see what we can do to improve it. I mean, the whole history of of science is getting tripped up with error confounding and bias and then designing a new research mechanism that will prevent that and that's where we are in uh, in this whole peer review thing. I, I do think one thing that has not been addressed is how good of agreement can we expect to get. Um, in the evidence-based medicine movement the Cochrane reviews are considered to be the the best of the best as it were but 30% of Cochrane reviews have errors in them. And so <laughs> the question is how good can this system ever be given that it's a system based on judgments and with lots of, I think Pedro mentioned, you know, lots of, of biases, both uh, known and unknown. I think that's a great uh, point. Um, yeah, and uh, that. Even if it is transparent, you may still be seeing uh, something that isn't quite the truth. Um, so, Dr. Resnick, I, I kind of want to get your perspective on, on uh, Tom's point and also just y- your perspective in general about the need for openness and, and or transparency in peer review. Well, I, I agree with everything that's been said, the importance of distinguish 
in between transparent review versus uh, completely open review where it, reviewers would sign their reviews and all that. I think, I think one thing that really to keep in mind is that, you know, peer review is done by human beings and uh, people are imperfect and they're, they make mistakes and they're biased and um, you, we can try to improve it as much as we can, but um, you know, it's. I think it's thing that we have to live with. That it's is you know, try as we might, there's going to be limitations inherent in the process because it is done by people. And do you feel like transparency helps that situation at least incrementally? I mean, if if people are able to see what's going on, do you feel like that'll that'll I guess, keep people more on their toes and, and, and trying harder to, to be the best that they can? I think it helps. I think there's a lot of other things we can do that help beyond that. Like what? Um, that we really talked about today. Um, one thing I think is really important is education. I think, I think during the scientists' education, they should be educated on how to do peer review properly and that their mentors should work with them on that and, and they should, you know, show them how to do it responsibly and everything. I think that's just really a key part of the whole process we haven't even really talked about today. Well, I completely agree. I mean, just working in, in journals myself, it, it, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty surprising that how important reviewing is that we get so many people who who come to these journals and have never done it don't really have a great concept on how to do it um so i mean uh, is there a, a way that that anyone can think of that that we can increase this sort of education uh, in reviewing and, and and what that might look like um yeah go ahead yeah there are lots of initiatives out there the the technology is known. Uh, they've not been very successful in attracting people to do the programs and the results have not been horribly encouraging. But uh, the problem is that it takes time, training, and perspective to, to do a good peer review. And it's a voluntary process. So the rewards are not uh, commensurate with the, the responsibility. Yeah, that uh, that certainly seems to be the case, um, Doctor Ramirez. What do you think? You you're out there training young researchers. Do you um, touch on peer review as part of training, or encourage your your, your folks to uh, to review? Sure. So that's actually something that um, that I think that had not been brought up uh, previously. And as as I uh, you know as I listen to the uh, responses, I completely agree with what has been said. I think that um, the transparency, everyone would agree that, that obviously we would be in favor of that open review. I think that I, I would have uh, less optimism in the likelihood of this being uh, something that will be successful. And I think that it goes back to the responsibility of the editors of the journals. Uh, in selecting, being very selective as to who sits on their editorial board and therefore who is also a, a reviewer for their journal. Um, and there are mechanisms that many journals will have that, that look at the grading of the quality of the, of the reviewer and it may be a, a rotating position if their grading does not meet a, a certain level. 
um, because again, I think that it, it, it really uh, provides for the authenticity, the, the value, uh, the profile of that journal, uh, what is, um, how, how those uh, manuscripts are being built and by whom. Um, I think the, the other issue is the issue of the fact that, you know, as, as was mentioned, I think Tom was mentioning, is that this is a voluntary uh, responsibility. And often, particularly, you know, if you well, who are the thought leaders in the field, it's, it's going to be very limited. So often the thought field in the, and the thought leaders in the field are reviewers for 25 journals. And, uh, and the quality of the, uh, of the review may not be optimal, but they're just overwhelmed with reviews that they have to submit to the different journals. And therefore, now we're seeing something where, uh, whether transparent or not, where reviewers are actually delegating the, the task of reviewing to a trainee or, or, a, or a junior fellow. And, the, and some journals actually do ask you, has this review been done by somebody other than you, and, than you, and uh, who might that person be? So where that fails is that, well, you know, you have a, a, a fellow very active on your service, and you like the fellow, and, you know, they, they seem to perform well, and you say, well, I'm sure they can review this article. That uh, Obviously, uh, that's not appropriate, uh, but it's happening. And that, and that will be somewhat okay if that person took the time to mentor that individual as to how to, how to evaluate a manuscript and to absolutely sign off on the, on the review before submitting that. But it's just something that is happening. Um, training, certainly there's no formal training in it. And also at the same time, trainees are so overwhelmed with the amount of work that they have to do that it's very unlikely the trainee will come to our office and say, teach me how to review a manuscript uh, when they can't even keep up with, uh, with the work that they need to, to do clinically or, or research-wise. So I think it's a, it's a big challenge. I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for mentors and, and, uh, and, and when you do it, it's incredibly rewarding to see somebody uh, go from a novice and reviewing a manuscript to, to really being very thorough uh, and looking at all the aspects of the manuscript, but is it being done formally? No. And is it being done routinely? No. Do you feel like transparency could potentially, at least in part, address that a little bit if, if, if trainees and, and, and readers of research could read other reviews? Do you, do you think that might help them um, in, in crafting their own reviews, Dr. Ramirez? Yes, I think, I mean, certainly when, um, when, uh, when I'm, I'm uh, um, going over the process of, uh, of reviewing a manuscript with, uh, with a trainee, I often will draw on the, uh, on the uh, comments that I've made on previous manuscripts that have been published so that they can see um, what we were thinking and, and, and what was the process for, for uh, evaluating that, that manuscript. So I think it would be very, very helpful to them. It's very helpful. Obviously, you, you see the transition from the point where they give you two lines to the point where they give you a full page of, of evaluating a, a manuscript. Great. Um, so, yeah, I want to put a, another question out to you all, and that is um, basically how much transparency do we want, in, in your opinion at this point, I think? Uh, how much transparency do you feel is the appropriate amount that sort of balances, um, you know, some of the uh, the issues we, we've been talking about. Um, so, 
I'll start with um, Allison. Uh, I'm curious um, sort of what your ideal transparency situation might look like. Um, I think that there's sort of a gradient when it comes to it. I, there are some things that we absolutely have to know up front all the time. Like you have to have people declaring their conflicting interests. Um, you need to have authors declaring their funding, their conflicting interests, their financial disclosures. You need editors to be doing that too. Um, you need to have, I mean, for PLOS, we need to have the data be available. That's like a level of transparency as well. Um, we have the authors list out what they've done specifically on the paper so that they get the appropriate credit for the work that they've done. Um, and so that's like, to me, the foundation of what kind of transparency we should have. Um, there are additional things too, like you could have the time that it takes a paper to go through review, PLOS publishes it, that as well. And I think that can be really useful for authors to have. Um, beyond that, I don't know if it's how much do we need. I think that it's, like I said before, it's an interesting question to explore so how it can change the peer review process if you had suddenly like the editorial con uh, correspondence is published or you have the reviews published or you have the reviews signed. Um, I think that's, it's an open question that I think is worth asking, worth exploring. Um, I don't, for me personally, I'm interested in it because I like innovation and I like kind of that experimentalness. Um, but I think as a foundation, you need to have some certain things all the time. Great. I think that's a great perspective. And, and, and Dr. Resnick, I want to put this to you next. Um, in an ideal world, in, in your opinion, um, how much transparency do we want? What kinds of transparency do you think are, are the most important? Well, in an ideal world, um, we would not only describe the process itself, but I think we would we would actually get at those uh, subconscious biases that we uh, talked about in our earlier segments. I think somehow that needs to be made transparent because ultimately I think the goal of transparency is to, is to reveal to the readers, the public, everyone, that there's some kind of rational process at work here where we have arguments and uh, evidence and uh, conclusions supported by certain things so they can see into the entire process, including all the assumptions behind uh, different arguments that are made. And so that means, from my point of view, if we're just talking about an ideal world, we would really have to try to get at the biases too. Yeah, I think uh, that's going to take a while unless we can train computers to, uh, to think and read. Um, in which case we might actually have a chance at that. Um, so I want to put this now to uh, Tom. Um, what do you think uh, uh, sort of an ideal um, transparency uh, process might look like, um, setting aside the fact that people will be biased? So let's, let's, let's accept that, that that is still a part of this, but, but um, with humans being humans, how... how how transparent do you feel like the peer review process should be? Well, again, I go back to my thought that the, the literature and our discussions in the executive board of Whammy and CSE and so forth, that the, the process being transparent in the sense of this is what happens, there doesn't appear to be much disagreement about that. I would agree completely with Allison that that's kind of a done deal. They, 
the major issue is in open peer review. Do you publish the review with the article and is the reviewer's identity um, given at that point? Um, I think the jury is still out. Uh, like everything else, it solves some problems, but it opens up new ones. I was asked to edit or to review an article um, this, this morning, actually, for a journal that, that does open review. I would be required to sign it. Uh, but I was picked as a reviewer because the authors recommended that I be the one that, they re that review the article. So there's this little circular mechanism here, which I think is, has some bias in this case. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the larger issue, as I've mentioned, is I'm not sure we know how to spot bias. We have articles that get published and get lots of attention that don't lead to anything, and we get other articles that, that do lead to things. Um, in my own study of statistical flaws in the literature, where I reviewed more than 350 of these studies over several decades, um, none of them had very good results, but they weren't done in the, the Antarctic Community Bulletin, Community Medical Society Bulletin. These are the errors were found in Lancet and New England and Chest, you know, the major general medical journals and specialty journals. So I'm not sure we know what good is uh, because we've got good journals publishing articles with lots of problems, and we've got now some evidence, which will be presented at the Peer Review Congress, I believe, of predatory journals publishing articles that are being cited and are generally considered to be uh, high quality. So I, I'm not sure what a good system would look like, but I think we need to explore open review, and um, that's being done. It's just a matter of, I, I should also add, it also appears to be discipline specific. In mathematics, for example, the peer review process can take a long time, but the end result is oftentimes, yes, the math works out, um, as opposed to the much more nuanced what are the implications of this medical treatment uh, where there are, you know, there's, you know, values and, and uncertainties and so forth. So um, it, it's a fluid situation. I don't know that, uh, that I can imagine an ideal yet. Well, that's all right. That's why we're here talking, because I can't either. So I'm really happy to get all these perspectives. And, and finally, I want to want to hear from uh, Dr. Ramirez, um, who is you know, making these sorts of decisions uh, for the journal he's about to take on. Jo Dr. Ramirez, um, how much transparency are you looking for um, in your publication? I mean, I think that, uh, again, I, I would um, argue that the basis and the direction where we should go is more into the training and education of those who are going to be taking part in the review process and uh, placing a significant amount of responsibility on them and the editorial board of the journals. Um, I really don't see open access, uh, I mean open reviews uh, working in any way possible in favor of anyone. Um, but I, uh, I think that it should be an emphasis more so, again, on, on making sure that you have good reviewers, reviewers that know how to review a manuscript well, and then have the responsibility as the editor in a journal to make sure that you are, are um, 
obviously uh, funneling those manuscripts to the most unbiased uh, uh, reviewers for that particular topic. But uh, open open reviews, I, I don't see how it could it could work in any way um, that would potentially benefit science or the uh, or the public or the journals. I think that's a really uh, fascinating perspective in that. You know, maybe maybe transparency isn't isn't the end all be all. I mean, it, it seems like it would definitely help in, in certain respects. But but ultimately, I think a lot of you are, are, are sort of saying the same thing that a, a, a lot of benefit could could really be had by better education and better training um, from the people doing the reviews. So maybe that'll be the theme for next year's peer review week is uh, education and training. Um but I think that's all the time we have. So I want to thank you all uh, once again uh, for joining me today. I um, uh, want to uh, uh, just hope everybody enjoyed Peer Review Week and, and our podcast series here. Um, so you can find the entire series at jjeditorial.com slash news. Uh, I want to thank my guests for their time and thoughts. Uh, my guest, Tom Lang from Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, thanks a lot for being here. Is there... Anything you'd like to promote or any final thoughts you might have? Uh, no, thank you for the opportunity to contribute, and I think it's an important topic. Um, if you are uh, from a journal, uh, I think there are resources at WAMI and CSE uh, and EASE uh, in Europe that um, would give you more information on this topic. It's clearly in the literature and in people's minds, and, uh, and we need to explore it. Great. Thanks, Tom. And I'd also like to thank Allison Leung from the Public Library of Science for joining us. Allison, anything you'd like to promote or any final thoughts? Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a really interesting discussion. I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at PLOSNTDs and then at PLOSPathogens are my two Twitter accounts. Great. Thanks so much, Allison. Um, we have uh, Dr. David Resnick uh, from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, Dr. Resnick, any final thoughts or anything you'd like to promote? No, this has all been very uh, informative for me. I've, I've learned a lot just from our discussions. It's given me some more things to think about. So I, I look forward to these uh, conversations continuing. Me as well. Thank you, Dr. Resnick. And, and Dr. Pedro Ramirez from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, anything you'd like to promote, Dr. Uh, Ramirez, or any final thoughts? I wanted to uh, thank you, Michael, and thank the rest of the panelists. I learned uh, a great deal from all of you, and I, I look forward to further discussions. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. Uh, and remember uh, to visit peerreviewweek.wordpress.com and follow the hashtag peerrevwk17. Uh, for all your peer review week needs. And so, for Tom Lang, Allison Leung, Dr. David Resnick, and Dr. Pedro Ramirez, I'm Michael Casp, and we'll see you next time.